the rain is, uh, right? It's a blessing. Uh, it is a blessing. I think even with all this rain, I think the way our aquifer is designed, I don't think we'll get very much that will go into the aquifer. Uh, I, I've heard that over in San Antonio, it'll get a lot less rain and they'll get, uh, their aquifer will just fill up just like that. And uh, just kind of an interesting thing, you know, you think about all that rain and it'll just go into the ways and up to the Gulf. Uh, we have a, a blessing of having Stephen Simpson visiting with us this weekend. Stephen is the executive director of Faith Baptist Mission in Winter Haven, Florida. The church that started uh, Faith Baptist Mission has been a supporting church of my parents for a long time, many, many years. Uh, my grandmother was a member of uh, their church um, before she passed away, and um, he helps uh, missionaries in Australia, Indonesia, Mexico, West Africa. Did I miss? There are several countries in West Africa. Uh, so uh, I know you guys are probably want to form a line to try to talk to them and say, here am I, send me. I know, but please just go one at a time. Don't, don't totally rush them, you know. Uh, but um, it's been a great uh, weekend that I've uh, got to spend. He's staying at our house and Flying out tomorrow, uh, but has some great conversations with him. We're in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and we're looking at part 3. Uh, I didn't anticipate part 3, and we could make this a part 4, but I'm going to kind of just rush through it, okay? So we're going to like hold on, plus it's like raining really hard, and you guys aren't going to want to go out in the rain, so we might as well stay here until the passage is done. Uh, so Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6 through verse 14, if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6, this is the Word of the Lord. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying uh, to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, do not partake, participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for this day, and thank you for this opportunity we have to come and worship you. I pray now that uh, we will look at this text and consider the past texts that we've read and apply them to our lives. Father, there's no amount of rhetoric that can change our hearts, but it's your spirit. And I pray, Father, that your spirit will transform us uh, into the image of your Son. Father, we know that's your will, and I pray that we'll uh, see this text as a way to become more like Christ and less like ourselves. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. At the end of the service, we'll be having the Lord's Supper. There was a table on the outside, and if you are planning on partaking in the Lord's Supper, you'll want to have those elements. So we've been looking at, at change and that change sometimes catches us by surprise. We um, uh, 
we don't anticipate something. We, we don't calculate. We don't really think about what does it mean that there's going to be this change in our life. We, we, uh, we get married and we don't really think about how that's going to change maybe dynamics with friends and what we're doing and uh, putting Ikea furniture together and so forth. And then we also thought about change in the, in the aspect that, that when change happens, when uh, there is a reality, you need, to, uh, you need to plan based on that reality. For example, if you live in San Jose, Costa Rica, you need to make a plan for an earthquake. It's just, you have to. If you live in Puerto Rodas, Venezuela, you, you do not have to make any type of plan for an earthquake. If you live in Galveston, you need to have a plan for a hurricane. It's going to happen at some time. Sometime it's going to happen. If you live in Montana, you don't need a plan for a hurricane. Uh, so based on your reality, you need to make decisions. And, and now what we're going to be looking at a little bit is how uh, decisions uh, we need to be thinking about uh, to be able to produce what, what we're wanting. Uh, decisions that we need to be making to produce what we want. And um, the, the best way that I could kind of think about this a little bit was um, cooking. Do you guys like lentils? Like lentils? Nobody likes lentils. No one wants to uh, commit to lentils. So, you know, with, with lentils, you can get someone's birthright. I mean, that's just something that can happen. If you cook a good pot of lentils, you can get somebody's birthright. I'm thinking about Jacob and, and Esau, right? So, uh, for lentils, you need, uh, you need some ingredients, right? And uh, I'm trying to think of here. You'll want to have some lentils if you're going to have lentils. Uh, so we'll put the lentils in. And then we also need some other things. Um, you, you want to have some sweetness. Sweetness is important. It kind of, uh, lentils have kind of an earthy taste, and so you want something kind of a little bit sweet. And uh, you want to put those in. Other carrot too. And then uh, you want also... I mean, you don't want to go full on mirepoix, you know, with, with the celery and so forth, but you do want uh, some onion in it. It gives it, you know, a little bit of acid. That, that helps it a lot better. And then you, if you just do, like, water, it's going to be kind of blah, you know, it's, it's not going to be. So I, I would suggest a chicken stock. Uh, you could do beef stock if you have beef stock, but we'll add chicken stock into it. And, uh, of course, it, it's... It's never really fortified enough, so you, you got to kind of cheat a little bit with a with a bouillon cube, right? I mean, that's so you throw the bouillon cube in too. And uh, lentils sometimes they don't put garlic in it. I would suggest you to put the garlic in it. It really is going to help it. It's going to it's it's going to give uh, more of a a nasal appreciation to it. And, and so the other thing you need is, is fire. Uh, and this this table will burn quite nicely. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to burn the table. And so what, what you need to do, so we got the fire and we got everything. We'll kind of stir that a little bit. And then at the end, we'll serve Dave some, because usually his stomach's growling by the end anyway. So we'll have some lentils before the Lord's Supper. All right? Uh, we'll just leave that aside for now. Now, thinking about what we've looked at, uh, we've looked at that those who are in Christ must believe God's word. And we saw that in verses 6 and 7. Now, believing God's word requires a step back where the person uh, assumes that God's word is authoritative to their life. We can sometimes think that something is true 
But if, if it doesn't have authority, we're, we're not going to apply it to our lives. Like it might have authority for these little kids or, or for these women, but for a man like me, it has no authority. And we could deceive ourselves like that. We could believe this is God's word, but it doesn't have authority on me. So in believing about God's word, it's important to understand that I submit myself to the word of God. Uh, not because it's the Bible, but because it's God who has given this message. It's God who has revealed himself. So because God has revealed himself in this text, I submit to God and I follow his word. Now, not only are we to, um, uh, those who are in Christ must believe God's word, those who are in Christ must walk in light. And here's the imperative force of this section. It's where the command is to put into practice. And it puts in opposition on one side light and on the other side darkness. And, and the two do not meet. The, the two do not come together. The two do not um, cooperate one with the other. There's light and there's darkness. And those who are in Christ, because Christ is light, because Jesus is light, uh, we are to walk in light. There's no way of getting around that. There's no way of saying, well, I'm going to be a secret Christian. No, it has a profound impact for us. And furthermore, as we, uh, we, we don't have any light in ourselves, uh, our light is dependent on, on God. So uh, we reflect his glory. And as we grow closer and closer to the Lord, we are able to reflect that glory better and better. A person very distant from the Lord, not walking with the Lord, not putting into practice any of God's word, it's very difficult to reflect this light because it's not in proximity to the light. A person must repent and turn to the Lord. Now what we'll be looking at in verses 10 through 13 is that those who are in Christ must test and expose sin. Those who are in Christ must test and expose sin. Now, uh, some people have been anticipating this verse from the moment I started Ephesians. Uh, they, they, they've been waiting for this set of verses. And uh, uh, I, I've laid out that uh, we finished Matthew chapter 28, uh, 19 and 20, the Great Commission, and then we saw that this was an aspect of, of, uh, that we found in the Old Testament through, through Jonah, Nahum, and then we kind of looked at the product of missionary work as this church in Antioch has sent Paul out and he has gone and witnessed there in Ephesus. And the result is to continue edifying the believers. Uh, but some will take this aspect here that we'll see. And I don't want to minimize any of the message of Paul. That, that's not my point at all. But there is a certain logic in his discourse that he has developed. Uh, the way he has uh, presented the material and before we look at this, we need to have in mind that he has presented some other commands, some other imperatives, some other things that we need to be applying. For example, Ephesians 4.1, that we walk in unity. Ephesians 4.17, that we walk in holiness. Uh, Ephesians 5.1, that we walk in love. And now he's saying in Ephesians 5.8, that we walk in in light. Now, with that in mind, that he doesn't start this section off with uh, 
what we're going to be looking at, but rather it's the development after he has already presented some other things. Uh, we see in, in verse 10, he says, uh, trying to learn, trying to learn. It, it's, a, uh, it's a participle that uh, has this uh, idea of to make a critical examination of something, to determine if it's genuine, to, to put something to the test. Uh, in Venezuela, you can walk along the streets and there's people that are selling clothing. And uh, sometimes they'll have it on a, uh, just on the floor on, on a blanket and they'll have different articles of clothing. Sometimes they'll have a little table. Uh, but they'll have name brands from around the world uh, right there on that little blanket or on that little table and they're wanting to sell it to you. Now, uh, a person that's buying will want to determine, first of all, if it's genuine. Uh, you know, uh, for all they know, it could be just, you know, made somewhere along the way. They, uh, you know, they took the member's mark tag off and they put a Levi's tag. Who knows? Uh, you look for, is it, is it a genuine product? And it's the idea of determining if something is real that is this um, uh, trying to, to learn. It's determining, putting it to a test to examine. And it has this idea of, uh, of testing to be able to approve something. Uh, professors like to test their students to see if they know the information or if they've just been daydreaming the whole time, right? Now, what is going to be tested? What, what is going to be learned here? Well, it says trying to learn what is pleasing. What is pleasing? That word pleasing has uh, the idea of something that is welcoming, something that is well-received. Um, you, you go to sometimes to uh, different places around the world, and they want to feed you. And uh, they, they put the food there in front of you, and you're like, oh, my word. <laughs> Uh, how am I going to do this? You know, uh, I, I'm not sure that I can do this. And uh, you ask for grace and mercy on the part of the Lord to, to be able to eat what you have in front of you. Uh, this, uh, this is not like that where you're dreading something, but this is a, something that's being presented and it's well received. It's welcomed. It's like, yes, I approve of this. Now, on the basis of whom is it to be well-pleasing? Who, who is the determining person that we are supposed to be examining something for. Well, the verse tells us to the Lord that, that it's supposed to be pleasing to the Lord. Now, the fact that Paul could have written uh, several terms for Jesus, I mean, he, he could have called him Jesus, uh, he could have called him uh, Christ, but he uses the term Lord, which has a, an authoritative uh, term associated with it. It has this idea of, of an authority. Uh, just like as you are um, uh, working for somebody, you want to work in a way that's pleasing to them so that you'll get the raise, right? You'll, you'll be able to keep on working there. So it, it's not every individual doing things, examining things, well pleasing to themselves, but rather it's to be able to expose things, to determine, to examine things that are pleasing to the Lord. Now it, it puts a contrast, and that contrast is found in verse 11. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Uh, do not participate. This word uh, participate, it doesn't um, occur a lot of times. In fact, it, um, it only occurs two other times. And it has this idea of 
of being in close association with something uh, uh, or an activity, to be in a very close association or activity. It's used only two other times. It's used, for example, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 14. Uh, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and he is uh, thanking them for the offering that they gave. And he says, uh, nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. They're, they're giving uh, to, to the missions. Uh, they ended up depriving themselves. Maybe they wanted to go to Chick-fil-A or maybe they wanted to have uh, several lattes that month. But they decided not to have several lattes that month or go to Chick-fil-A. And they decided to uh, give those funds over to, to Paul to uh, keep on the mission. And he says that they have shared uh, with me in my affliction. They've participated. They, they, they've joined in the effort of reaching the lost. Uh, it's also used in Revelation chapter 18, verse 4. Uh, here there's this angel, and the angel comes, and there's the destruction of Babylon. And it says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. Uh, the idea is that those who are following the Lord, if they don't want to be receiving the punishment, they need to distance themselves from the sins. They don't need to be participating with. So this is a, a, a not a uh, casual uh, wave at the neighbor type thing, but this is a, an activity where the person is participating in the sinful behavior of other people. They're, they're involved. And as it says, do not participate. In what? In unfruitful deeds or works. Now, every work produces something. Uh, at the bare minimum, work produces tiredness, right? Uh, but it always produces something. But here it says that it is uh, unfruitful. In what sense is it unfruitful? Or better yet, uh, from the perspective of whom is it unfruitful? Well, this is a, a very interesting thing because from God's perspective, he looks at these deeds of the sons of disobedience and he says it has no value. It produces nothing worthwhile. But let me warn you that uh, the opposite would be true. If you are part of the sons of disobedience and you are looking at the fruits of those who are the sons of obedience, the sons as children of light, and you're looking at what they're doing, if you are a son of disobedience, you'll look at that and you'll say, that is worthless. Why are they doing that? That, that makes no sense what they're doing. It's a waste of time. That's not going to produce whatever their value system has. So the unfruitfulness here is not that they're not producing something. They are producing something, but from God's perspective, what is being produced is worthless. It has no value at all. And, and who is doing this producing? Well, it says the unfruitful deeds of darkness. It's put in antithesis to the light. On one side... There is this darkness, and then on the other side, there is a light. Uh, the darkness has nothing to do with the light, and these unfruitful people, they, they scurry to the corners and to the shadows. And God says what they're doing in the darkness 
is worthless. It has no value at all. Now, he says, furthermore, but instead, and this is where some people get really excited, but instead even expose them. And there's a comparative adverb here that marks an alternative. So rather than participating, don't, don't participate. Rather, what you're going to do is expose them. And the idea there is it's an imperative, and it's to bring to the point of recognition of wrongdoing. So it's not just a point to single out the sin that was done, but it's the idea of communicating to the person so that they have an understanding that what they are doing, what they have done, is actually wrong. So uh, this word is used some 17 times in the New Testament. It's associated with the ministry of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16, verse 8. Uh, Jesus is talking about how the Holy Spirit is going to uh, come after he leaves. And one of the aspects, one of the things that he's going to be doing is that he's going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. It's to bring individuals to the knowledge of the fact that they have done wrong. Uh, how, how, do you, how does a person recognize their need for a Savior? It's because the Holy Spirit works in their life and shows them they need a Savior. Unless the Spirit were to work in our lives so that we could understand that we've sinned against a holy God, we, we wouldn't get it. It's also mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20. It says, Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Uh, this rebuke is to convince of sin, to expose it. Uh, so we don't continue hiding sin. We don't continue leaving it in the darkness. Uh, it gets uh, rebuked and, and shown in the presence of all. Uh, maybe the person who gets rebuked is not going to have a, a good ending. That person will probably uh, leave huffing and puffing. But the rest of the congregation gets to see the reaction, gets to see and be fearful of sinning. Paul also wrote to Titus, the elders, that uh, they're, the elders are supposed to be... Uh, rebuking members of sinning over in Titus 1, 9, and 13. So rather than participate in unfruitful works of darkness, the believer has a responsibility from God's word to expose, to, to show to the point that the person acknowledges wrongdoing. And it's, it's to show them skillfully that what has gone on, what has happened, it is not just, uh, uh, you know, you hurt my feeling, but what you have done is sin. Now, looking at verse 12, uh, verse 12, it says, uh, For this is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. It, it's, it's shameful. It's disgraceful. It's contemptible. It, it has this uh, idea of... Um, it's not good what they're doing. And they're doing this stuff secretively. That word secretly only appears in this one place in the New Testament. It doesn't get used anywhere else. It does get used in the Old Testament in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation. And it occurs about some ten times. 
Uh, for example, in Isaiah chapter 29, verse uh, 15, uh, the prophet is writing, and it says, uh, Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord, and whose deeds are done in dark, uh, a dark place. And they say, Who sees us? And who knows us? Uh, God. God sees. That's who sees. Uh, there's this idea that I'm over in the corner and no one sees me. I'm over here in the shadows. I'm over to the, to the side. I've just got done singing songs of worship to the Lord and, and everybody thinks everything is good, but now I'm, I'm over here on the side and I'm, I'm doing sinfulness. But who will know? God knows. That's who knows. Now, it says in verse 13, uh, but all things become visible when they're exposed by, by the light. Things become visible when you shine light on them. For everything that has become visible is light. Now, this aspect of shining light is a very hard thing to do. Uh, they avoid light. They stay in the corners. They walk along the shadows uh, uh, where you can't see, and to bring, to expose the light is very difficult. In fact, uh, I don't know if more time gets uh, used trying to avoid light or how to continue in sin, but it's very hard to expose. We were staying in a beautiful, beautiful home in Mountain City, Tennessee. Beautiful home. The, the view was fantastic. But every night we would clean up before going to bed. We would disinfect. We would uh, sweep up. We'd make everything all tidy. Make sure there was nothing uh, dropped, no crumbs anywhere. But uh, as we would wake up in the morning, we would see certain evidences. Little black things left. Mice droppings. And they would be on the counters. And we would see the bags of bread and they would have holes torn into them and bread missing. You could eat the rest of the bread, you know, just not that part. Uh, it's what we fed the, the youth. You can thank me later. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you, you would see the evidence. Now, as much as we tried and tried and tried to expose the thing, we couldn't do it. They, they were so crafty at, at uh, coming out at the right time. And what you ended up was with a bunch of evidence of wrongdoing, but it was very hard to expose the one who was doing the wrong. And that's how it happens many times in churches, too. There is stuff going on, lurking in the shadows in the corners, stuff that's happening that does not glorify God, does not reflect being light. And it's hard to pinpoint where exactly is this happening? I, I can't tell. Where is it happening at? But you start seeing evidences in the church. Start seeing things that are happening, evident of people not walking in the light. Now, Paul is, um, he tells the believers to expose those things being done in secret, to make them visible. And, and it's a very hard thing to do but it's the idea of exposing the person so that there can be repentance. 
Now, we think about those who are in Christ must test and expose sin. That, that's what must be done. Those who are in Christ must test and expose sin. Uh, those who are in Christ, if we're going to apply this, must test and expose sin, uh, not their personal standards. So how do we apply this? Well, the person must the person who is in Christ must test and expose sin, but not their personal standards. Uh, unfortunately, it happens many times that we'll get a conviction about something and we'll elevate our conviction about something to the standard of God's holy word. Boom, it's there. And then we'll see, I'm sure Foy does this, He'll violate that holy standard that that person has. Oh, my word. What happens then? Did you see Brother Foy? I don't know if I can call him Brother Foy. Did you see what he did? He, he dressed up as one of those bunnies and was passing out Easter eggs. Now, I, I'm not going to ever dress up as a bunny and pass out Easter eggs. But you have a very hard, hard time making it a biblical conviction from God's word. You can make it a personal standard. I make it a personal standard. But there he was, dressed up as a bunny, passing out Easter eggs. And, oh, I can't believe it. I'm just joking. I haven't seen him do that. He might do it this year. That might be a thing. But sometimes we elevate our personal convictions to be equal to God's word. But we're not called to enforce our standards. We're not called to enforce our preferences. We're not. What we're to expose to light is sinfulness. And that is what we need to be doing. We need to align ourselves with God, which requires that we know God's word to be able to distinguish what is just my personal conviction and what is thus saith the Lord. Because it's what thus saith the Lord is what's important. Now, when you start thinking about sin, don't just think in terms of actions that you don't like. Uh, parents do this so many times. Uh, all of a sudden, their, sin is, their son or their daughter is sinning when they start to annoy them. You know, they've been doing the thing for 10 minutes and it's not been an issue, but now they're doing it towards them and it's really getting aggravating and annoying. And so now all of a sudden, it's sin and you must stop it. Don't, don't, don't address just actions that you don't like. Don't, don't do that. Rather, get to know God and his character and his word so that you can instruct in what is actually sin and not just your preferences. Furthermore, go a step further and, and look at motivations of the heart that are not in accordance with God. See, a person can be doing a very good action, like sitting here in church. But what's motivating them to be here is not the worship of the triune God, but maybe so that somebody can see them. Maybe they're looking for self-glory. Maybe they're wanting to appear religious or spiritual. Uh, you know, maybe they, who knows? But what's motivating their heart is not the worship of the Lord. It's something else. So don't just look at actions. Look at what's motivating the heart. You remember Eve in Genesis chapter 3? She did violate God's law when she ate of the fruit that she wasn't supposed to. 
But think about what happened prior to that as she is discussing with the serpent. She's doubting God's goodness. She is doubting that God has her best interests in mind. He is withholding information, information that I think I should have. Ah, what's motivating her to violate God's law is a doubt in that God is good. These rebellious actions that we have, even before the action is committed, occur within our heart, and these things need to be exposed. Now, those who are in Christ must test and expose sin daily. Now, the question is, who, who is supposed to be exposed in this way? Who is supposed to be taken to the light? Well, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't limit it. So uh, some of you who have been very active on Twitter and Facebook talking about uh, pastors down the street and presidents and, and um, sports figures and so forth. But I think contextually, he's writing to a, a, a church. And I think if we were going to apply this, we, we should start first in a church setting before we start with all the politicians and we start with all the other pastors of other churches. He is writing to these believers here and telling these believers that the way that they're supposed to be conducting themselves, at first in unity, uh, then to walk in holiness, then to walk in love, and then to walk in light, and as you're walking in light, to then be exposing people to their sinful behaviors. And it's in the local church setting. Now, this is probably very hard to do uh, because uh, usually in church settings we have our friends, and we don't, want to, we don't want to tell them what they're doing is wrong. We don't want to expose them. So we'll overlook things that are being done. Uh, but we've seen a whole list here from chapter 4 and chapter 5 of things that we're not supposed to be doing and things we are supposed to be doing. So those who are in Christ must test and expose sin, and they must do it daily. Now those who are in Christ must move close to Christ daily. And we see that in verse 14. Here Paul gives two imperatives and then a future, which uh, is a promise of something that will happen. He says, for this reason, uh, it says, when it says for this reason, it says, some people have taken that he's using an Old Testament quotation. If you have a reference Bible, you'll see like, like five verses for this one verse of where it could be a reference to. Uh, some will even say uh, Jonah's prayer. There's not an exact quotation from it. So some others have said, well, maybe this is a, an old hymn that he is using. Not an Old Testament text, but an old hymn. A hymn that they would have sung there in Ephesus, and he's telling them this thing. And the hymn thing seems a lot better than the quotation because uh, the quotation would be so mixed match from some of the, so many different verses that it just doesn't, it doesn't flow well. So what, what are the two imperatives? The first is to awake. Wake up. Be alert. Quit going around sleeping with your eyes closed on things that are going around you. Wake up. And then the second one is to rise. Arise from the dead. Uh, there are those, the sons of disobedience. Don't, don't stay in there with them. Remove yourself from them. Arise. Get out of there. And then the promise, and Christ will shine, that's the future, that's the promise, on you. 
and Christ will shine on you. So many times, rookie cooks, they don't think about the end. They don't. They just start cooking and they don't think about what the end is going to produce. So they'll do silly things like put a whole carrot in. Can you imagine serving this? You try to put it on your spoon. I can't do it. How would you do that? Even if it's mushy, you can't put a whole carrot in your mouth. Or maybe, maybe the onion. Now, if you look at here, we've got all the components for a lentil soup. We do. We've got all the components there. But it doesn't matter how much time we spend here, because I haven't worked with the end in mind, it's just worthless. It's just totally worthless. Eventually, the carrots will rot. Eventually, the onion will rot. The garlic will rot. Probably, my guess, is that the lentils will be the last one to go, but they'll also rot. The components are there, but because I haven't put any forethought in the end, it's worthless. And that's how many Christians are. Many Christians have components of the Christian life. They come to church. Every once in a while, they, they read their Bible, they pray, they give a little offering. They might even help the missionary out. But, but there's no end. And the end is that the, you're going to have Christ shine light on you to walk in light as children of light. What's the end? The end is to be light, like Christ is light. But there's nothing being done with that view in mind. So just haphazard stuff is happening. And there's no transformation. There's no fruit of light, which is goodness and righteousness and justice. It doesn't change. In fact, what it does is it starts to deteriorate after years. It starts to break down. And what you have is something that just needs to be thrown out. I wonder in our life, are we living the Christian life with the end in sight? Or are we just doing things? Have we caught a vision that what Christ wants to do is to transform us into light and we're working towards that goal? Or are we just doing things? we got components. we got all the things, but there isn't any change. In fact, it's getting worse. It's deteriorating. It's rotting. Paul expresses here, after he tells them to walk in unity, to walk in holiness, to walk in love, to walk in light, to be exposing one another, to convince the show of sin. And I wonder, are we working towards a goal of light? Or are we just coming? It might be that you can't do that because you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. You, you haven't taken the, the step of putting your faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. There, there's no change in your life because you're not saved. Oh, you, you can talk about stock and you can talk about onions and you can talk about carrots, but you don't have a clue how one thing has to do with the other. And today, you could accept Christ as your personal Savior. You could put your faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross and be saved, have life, be transformed. 
into this new creature that Paul has been presenting in this new dispensation. Other of us here, maybe we did get saved a while back, but we've grown distant from it. Oh, we got components. There's no fire. But we've got a pot, and we've got onions, and we've got lentils. Is it changing? No, it's just sitting there. Will it change? No. Unless we think about the end in mind. Let's pray. Father, I pray now as we're about to go into taking the Lord's Supper, that your spirit would work in our minds and our souls. Father, I pray now that uh, we'll examine ourselves. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.